welcome to the ninth episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Seven Keys to Running a Successful No-Till Operation, is being brought to you by Copperhead Ag. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert about upcoming episodes when they are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Copperhead Ag, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel, for sponsoring today's episode. Finally, there is one closing wheel for all of your acres. The Furrow Cruiser has a unique combination of aggressiveness and control that allows it to win yield trials in all conditions. These wheels are the real deal. They will not plug up on you, and the poly material they are made from stands up to heavy abuse. In fact, it's so strong they give it a lifetime guarantee against breakage. If you want to finally have all your furrows closed right, get the most even emergence out of your crop, and have a closing wheel that has proven to pay for itself in the first season, then visit copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how these wheels are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code PODCAST at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code PODCAST at copperheadag.com. Over 20 years ago, Mike Wolpert was working a field that had been plowed wet in the spring and after about the sixth tillage pass, the soil was somewhere between concrete and a softball. That's when his wife said to him, you know, you're beating that ground to death. Why don't you just no-till everything? So he attended one of the first national no-tillage conferences and when he returned home to Hurricane West Virginia, he decided he was going to commit to no-till 100%. He ended up making more money in those first five years of no-till than he had in the previous 25. After 20 years of no-tilling, Mike shared his keys to success with the attendees of the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference. In today's No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Copperhead Ag, we welcome Mike to talk about the steps no-tillers need to take to ensure they have a successful operation in the long run. Good morning. Uh, I am Mike Wolpert and uh, I live in Hurricane, West Virginia. We live on a farm there uh, with my wife, Jeannie, and my uh, two kids, Bailey and Grace. Uh, we don't do a lot of farming there, but my kids have their 4 age calves and we do a few freezer beef there. Where I do the majority of my farming is up in, the, in Mason County there, which is where at Star is in the center. Um, if you remember anything about from your fifth grade geography, you'll recall West Virginia is a mountain state and we don't have a whole lot of tillable ground. Uh, the majority of tillable ground we have is in Mason County uh, because the Ohio River borders it on three sides and uh, the Canal River also traverses through there. And uh, that's where we do our farming is along the, uh, the Ohio and the Canal Rivers. Now, when you attend these conferences or these sessions, uh, they're usually led by someone who's a college professor, uh, somebody from Extension, and they have some great research they want to share with you, or it's somebody in the industry that has a new product that will make your no-tailing go a whole lot better. Or if it is a farmer, it's someone who's raised four or 500 bushel corn or 100 bushel beans 
or they farm 50,000 acres over three or four states. That's not me. Um, I'm a part-time farmer. Uh, I'm going to go over kind of my history of the last 40 years, and, uh, and I'm going to do that rather briefly because you can't change the past. But I do have some ideas I think that are, are key to be successful in the future. So I started in a partnership with my brother-in-law when I was still in high school after my parents passed away. And we continued to uh, farm. That was a central Ohio farm. Uh, while I went to Ohio State University, in which I graduated from in 74. Also in 1974, we moved the majority of our operation to West Virginia. Now in 1974, any grain farmer worth his weight in salt uh, his fields look like that, Can, you know, moldboard plow, no residue on the surface. And that is not a picture from 1974. I took that in November of this past year. No, that's not my farm, that's my neighbor's farm. And uh, there's still some people think that's the way to do things. I'm not amongst them. But, you know, I was kind of amazed even driving up here yesterday, the amount of tillage I saw in southern Indiana. And uh, when we had the conference there in Illinois a few years ago, I was really amazed. We drove up from St. Louis, uh, the amount of moldboard plowing that still goes on. But maybe those guys know something I don't know. Now, in all fairness to my neighbor's field here, if you look at the green in the background there, that's cover crop, which uh, he had sowed after planting soybeans. In the field that was plowed, he had just done some drainage work, had done some clearing, and he's uh, getting that, that field leveled up. And I doubt seriously you'll ever see bare dirt on that field. So, But anyway, uh, when we started out, we conventionally tilled somewhere between 600 to 1,400 acres over the years. And quite frankly, we were not overly successful. Uh, some partnerships work, some don't, ours didn't. And uh, then came the farm crisis of the 1980s. Uh, some of you I can see have similar hair color as me and you guys can remember that. And uh, we could have been the uh, poster child of everything you could do wrong leading up to that point. Um, we had very poor cash flow. Our borrowing was based on equity, not cash flow. Uh, we had very poor timing of expansion. We expanded for the sake of expanding, not that it made e any economic sense. And then you combine that with three really poor crop years in a row, low prices, and 16 to 18% interest, you've got a perfect storm for disaster. And we ended up in Chapter 11 and Chapter 12 bankruptcy. And uh, the partnership ended at that point, which it probably should have beforehand. But I didn't want to give up farming at that point. Uh, there were a lot of times I felt I could have made better decisions than what we did in a partnership. And so I started uh, farming as a sole proprietor in 1994. Um, I had no money. I had a worn out line of machinery and 1,200 acres of leased ground. Now, this is a no-till conference and all I've talked about is conventional tillage so far. Uh, before the partnership broke up, we, uh, I had bought a new planter in the 80s somewhere, and the dealer said to me, do you want to put no-till coulters on this? And I had not given any thought to it, and obviously it wasn't too expensive, so I agreed to it. And I tried no-till a little bit, 
and it was hit or miss. It either worked really good or it was really bad, and I didn't really have a clue as to why. But when I started uh, farming on my own, I was still pretty much a conventional tillage farmer. And my wife came over to the farm that first year, and that day we were working a field which had been plowed wet in the spring and hadn't been worked down. And after about the fifth or sixth tillage pass over it, I had dirt clods somewhere between a concrete block and a softball, you know, nowhere near a uh, good seed bed. And my wife said to me, you know, you're beating that ground to death. Why don't you just no-till everything? Guys, don't you just hate it when your wife makes some profound statement <laughs> like that? <laughs> But that spurred me, you know, why, why was it that, and that earlier that spring I had no-tilled about 100 acres of corn, and the reason she said that, I mean, it looked great. That corn was ready to be side-dressed, and here I was beating concrete blocks up to death with tillage. But that spurred me to really look into, uh, you know, why is no-tillage working for me sometimes, and sometimes it's a bust. So I researched that, or tried to, and this is, day, this is before the internet, so it was a little bit tough, but one of the things I ran across was this, this conference that we're at here, is the National No-Tillage Conference, and the first one I attended was in 1995. It was, uh, they had two or three prior to that, and I believe it was here in Indianapolis. Is that correct, Frank? I don't know, 1995, that sounds good. You guys will believe it anyway. But anyway, the first day or so that I was here, my, my head hurt with knowledge because there, it became clear to me as to why sometimes this was working for me and sometimes it wasn't. And I had one of those aha moments. And you know, this, this is all making sense to me at that point. So after the two or three days at attending here, and my brain was overloaded, on the way home, I decided I'm, I'm going to become 100% no-till. I think I can make this work, and I did. And uh, due to different management, you know, in that I was no longer in the partnership, and the fact that I was no-tilling, I, I was relatively successful. Uh, we grew from 1,200 acres to 2,500 acres by the year 2000. Uh, I bought a small farm, put a grain handling facility on it, and uh, was relatively successful. I made more money in five years than what I had made in the previous 25. But everything doesn't flow as you'd like for it to sometimes. Uh, 1,700 acres of my 2,500 acres was leased from uh, a large utility company and they changed their management to a central management in Columbus, Ohio, rather than local management. But to make a long story short, uh, I lost 1,700 acres uh, to one farmer who leased all of it in three states at one fell swoop. So that was a pretty good chunk of my ground gone. I tried to lease some additional ground for the next couple of years, and I did pick up some, but as I say, in West Virginia, you have a limited land base, and uh, I was never able to get up to the acres I wanted to. And then also in 2005, one of my landlords came to me, and uh, he had received a higher offer, and I had to, you know, I could have increased my offer, but th it was a time that's pretty similar to what we're looking at now. Uh, barely at break-even prices, and 
in the, the sting of bankruptcy was still pretty, pretty fresh in my mind, and my financial condition had improved considerably. In fact, I had just a little bit of land debt at that point, and otherwise I was in pretty good shape. So I didn't want to go back down that same road, so I elected to become a, a part-time farmer. My banker didn't care much for the idea because I wasn't going to be borrowing money from him anymore. But anyway, I dropped down to, I've been farming between three to 600 acres since that point. Also, my wife is a dentist, and at that, that same time, uh, her office manager left, and I have a vested interest in making sure her business does well, kind of helps support mine. And uh, as being an office manager, there are several activities I got to do. I got to pay the bills, pay the taxes. I got to do payroll once every two weeks, which means I can be gone 13 days in a row out of that office. Nobody says a thing, but on day 14, I better be there. Uh, now, it probably sounds like, you know, I've had several misses. I went, I went broke. I've lost most of my land. But we have had some hits. We've had some successes. Uh, we were named Conservation Farm of the Year two different times. Uh, we were awarded Farm Innovator Award by the West Virginia Farm Bureau and the State Fair of West Virginia. Uh, we were nominated for Farm Innovator at this conference, and we've participated in national corn yield contests for many years, and we've won over 15 state titles, and we're fortunate enough to win two national titles. Now, that's a pretty quick synopsis of 40 years of farming, but and I can't change anything in the past, but I can change what I do in the future. So here are some things that I think are key to be successful in the future. First thing you need to do is establish your farm's mission. Now, all of us want to make money. We want to be successful, but that's not a mission. You need to decide what separates your farm. What direction do you want to go? You know, what is your purpose? Uh, what, you know, what's your lifetime goal? Uh, the fellow yesterday afternoon that is, and I can't remember his name right now, but, uh, you know, he has the livestock. He wants to raise the non-GMO. He's on a mission. That's the direction his farm needs to go. I think all of you need to decide what is your mission besides you just want to be profitable. You know, it could be organic or it can be non-GMO like that fellow. Or you may want to become more diversified or less diversified. You might, might want to get away from commodity crops, more specialized crops. You may want to retire at 50. I missed that one by a long shot. But yeah, my mission is I want to leave the ground in better shape than I found it. You know, that guy that keeps leasing ground from me all the time, uh, I want to make sure he's got some good stuff. No, uh, I've made more money and been more successful since I've changed to no-till and I've incorporated cover crops. So it's, that's worked for me. Yeah, the ground's going to be in better shape for somebody else, but it's working for me. But once you establish that mission, make sure that every activity you do on your farm stays true to that. If you're going to try a new practice or something, if it goes away from what your mission is, you might want to rethink that. The next thing that I think is key to be successful is attitude. You've got to be positive about what you're doing. When I reflect back at the times that I have been successful, it was, yes, I can do this. You know, the, the glass was half full. It wasn't half empty. And in times when, like we're seeing right now with commodity prices low, it's pretty easy to think, oh, gosh, I'm going to 
lose money anyway. But there are acres on your farm that you are going to make money. There are those places where you know you have 250 bushel corn ground or 70 bushel bean ground. Concentrate on those. Be positive. Uh, and surround yourself with positive people. If you have employees and so on, you don't want any Debbie Downers around. You know, if they don't have the positive attitude, you know, get rid of them. In my wife's office, when we interview somebody to work, if they're all downtrodden and, you know, life's been treating them rough and so on, I don't care what their, you know, abilities are. We don't even consider them. Have a network of colleagues with whom you can share ideas. And this conference is a great place to form those, those networks. Um, with communications what, such as we have now with, you know, with phones and uh, different ways of contacting each other, you can be out in the field, take a picture of a problem you have and share it with someone across the nation or across the world and get a response back from someone who has the same mindset you do. I've worked with a lot of agronomists sometimes who, you know, I'll have a problem and they'll say, well, you know, if you did tillage, you wouldn't have this problem. Um, that's not the type of person I want to be dealing with. I want to deal with people who have the same mindset I have. The next thing I think is to be key to be successful is be goal-oriented. You've got to set the bar somewhere. You, you have to be able to, uh, tr you know, try to seek to achieve something. Make those goals obtainable, but do not settle for mediocrity. Uh, make them high enough that you're always improving. I like to break these into long-term, which I consider three to five years, something like a drainage project, an expansion of, you know, of an operation, or transition. And that transition, I think, is something that a lot of us need to be thinking about. Several of you have same color hair I have, and too many of us are in uh, control of farms at our age, we need to be transitioning those farms to a younger generation. Your intermediate goals, these are your six months, the one year, you know, these are your yield or production goals. Uh, you know, set, set a whole farm goal for your yield, individual farms, and also even individual fields. Marketing goals, I try to have 30 to 40% of my crop marketed before the planter ever hits the ground. But you know, it's whatever fits your situation, but have a goal, have it written down. Your short terms, your daily, your weekly, your monthly, you know, I'm going to be done planting on the McCausland farm by the end of the week, or I'm going to be done harvesting by, you know, Halloween. And, you know, machinery maintenance, you know, when are you going to have your planter ready by, you know, March 15th is a pretty good date in my book. Write all these goals down. Make yourself accountable for it. Document it. And share them with others in your operation so you make sure everybody is on the same page. We'll rejoin Mike in a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Copperhead Egg, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel, for today's episode. The guys at Copperhead are wondering if you're still running the standard rubber tire or cast iron closing wheels on your planter. The rubber tire and cast closer that come standard on most planters have been beaten consistently by the Furrow Cruiser, no matter what tillage practices or soil type they have been tested in. If you are using one of these outdated systems, then you are likely losing yield. Do yourself a favor and stop by copperheadag.com today. 
You can check out their research page to see for yourself how furrow cruisers are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code PODCAST at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code PODCAST at copperheadag.com. And before we return to the program, I wanted to let you know that while we're currently wrapping up our 25th annual National No Tillage Conference here in St. Louis, you can register for the 2018 event at the super early bird rate, the lowest rate we offer. The next conference will be held in Louisville, Kentucky from January 9th through the 12th, and you can register today for a discounted price of $249, a savings of $130 off the full on-site rate. The super early bird rate ends January 31st. Visit notillconference.com for more information and to register. Now let's hear more from Mike on why detailed planning of your finances, fertility, variety selections, and more are so important to your no-till operation. The next thing I think is to be key to be successful is planning, planning, and do some more planning. All successful businesses have a very detailed business plan that covers every aspect of their operation, and your no-till operation should be the same way. Um, the first set I'm going to talk about are financial plans, and these are probably the most important plans that you can be making. Uh, one is you need to know your cost of production, you know, for the whole operation, for each farm, and even down to each field. Because each, on the breaking it down to each field, you can make management decisions, or, you know, are you going to put fungicide on or not? Yes, it may be costing you $20, $30 an acre, but that, that field may have the potential of 300 bushel corn versus 150 whole farm average. Um, and you need to be trying new enterprises, new practices and it may sound really good out here in the hallway of you know adding a new practice in there but do the economics of it you know if it doesn't work on paper it's not likely going to just work out uh, another thing you need to know your balance sheet and your cash flow positions even if you're not borrowing money uh, in times such as we are experiencing right now some of the best uh, potential capital purchases or land purchases become available in times of economic downturns like this. If you know your cash position, you know your balance sheet position, you might be able to make the deal of a lifetime because you can move quickly rather than having to go back and figure out what you need to do. Um, Rotation plans, I'm going to kind of skip over this quickly, but you know, rotation works. You have to have diversity. The soil responds to it. I don't care what anyone says. If you're limited on your rotational crops, cover crops can and will be helpful. I've adopted them since about 2008, and uh, they really work. Uh, they break up disease. But let's move on to fertility plans. Um, before you even sample, spend time analyzing your soil, soil maps, drainage, determine grid size. I'm not a big believer of just putting a two and a half acre grid on a map. I like to kind of skew things a little bit. I like to think of it more as zone management rather than grid size. And then once you get your results pack, um, you know, write your prescriptions or if you're not doing it by prescription, make application maps and share these 
with the uh, the person who's going to be putting your your nutrients on as to what you want when you want it and what amount I think placement and timing is going to be crucial I believe the days of dumping all your fertilizer in one fell swoop early in the spring is over with we need to be spoon feeding it more uh, the use of real-time sensing using drones aerial imagery is I think really going to change the way we do things over the next 20 years Plan on tissue sampling, both healthy and problem areas in your field, and plan on doing it more than once throughout the season. Make sure those nutrients you are applying are actually in the plant. You know, and I think we need to really plan on dramatic ways we're using fertilizers over the next 20 years. Uh, I believe we're in the infancy of understanding the interrelationships between cover crops, microorganisms, and fertility. Uh, the NP and K that we've been putting on well throughout my whole career I don't believe will change but the amounts we're putting on and when we put them on I think will also I think we really need to be proactive in having responsible nutrient management plans and we need to share these plans with the authorities that make regulations because Public outrage over excess nutrients getting into water resources are going to end up with unworkable regulations. You know, the situation in Lake Erie a couple of years ago, the, the deal that's going on in Iowa now, and <clears throat> over our way or in the eastern part of the state in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, they're going to demand regulations. And if we aren't proactive and work with these regulators, we're going to have regulations that are going to be unworkable. The next set of plans I think is essential to be successful is your variety selection plans. Do your homework. Spend considerable time sitting in the pickup truck with your seed dealer for 10 minutes and getting a free seed corn hat with your order is not spending a great deal of time. I, I like to break it down by maturity. I like to spread maturities out a little bit to spread your risk. Uh, traits. Buy what you need. I'm, I believe in using GMOs by all means, but don't spend money on what you don't need. Uh, your plant characteristics, you know, plant height, emergent scores, uh, the genetics have improved on that quite a bit, but we're, we're sometimes planting in difficult situations. Disease resistance is a really big one for me. Uh, in the river bottoms, we have fog continuously and gray leaf spot and things like that. If I can have natural resistance, uh, I try to buy it. Yield is, after I have those other characteristics, I look at yield and use multiple variety trials, preferably third-party independent ones. Uh, there's huge differences between uh, some of these yields. You need to you know, make a wise decision there. I consider price my last consideration on choosing seed. Cheap seed is usually just that, cheap seed. You look for value. If you have those other characteristics in line and also can get yield, then you have value. And usually the difference between cheap seed and some of the more expensive is very few bushels per acre. Once you decide what you're going to plant, Make a seeding map of your intentions. Have copies in the planter tractor, have it in your seed storage stead, and also in your pickup truck. We lots of times send somebody to go get seed, and uh, my 84-year-old father-in-law, you know, decalb seed looks like decalb seed to him, you know, so it will help 
so you don't have a, a problem during the busy planting time. Record your lot numbers with monitors, you know, that we have now. That's pretty easy to do. But I've had issues in the past of having multiple lot numbers of one variety. And if I have a problem in a field, they're going to want to know what lot number is where I have the problem. So make sure and record that. Take your delivery early so you know what you've got. And uh, have your seed needs separated out for each farm prior to planting. If you're using bulk, that doesn't really apply. But uh, if you have the Stanley farm on one pallet, the McCausland farm on another, uh, again, my father-in-law can't make a mistake quite nearly as easily. Next set of plans I'm gonna talk about your pesticide, inoculants and biologicals. On pesticides, you know, have a plan for each farm. Don't use a shotgun approach. You should use only what you need and when you need it. You know, don't overspend, but worse yet, don't underestimate your problems. It's a whole lot harder to fix a problem on the back end than what it is on the front. You know, watch your carryover intervals. You know, this is especially too true with cover crops. I've had issues with failure cover crops due to some of the, you know, herbicides I've used late in the season, so watch that. And of course, you know, make maps of your intentions and update after application. You need to be documenting, documenting this anyway. And have a plan, a written plan for scouting. On inoculants, and I'm specifically talking soybeans here, just use them. One of the best returns on investment that I've made, I've proved it myself many times. Ohio State's proved it. Uh, it's a no-brainer in my opinion. Biologicals, I've used them, not used them. I think there's still much to be learned. I've had inconsistent results with them. I'm gonna still keep playing with them, but I don't use them on the whole farm yet. Next set of plans are machinery plans. Uh, your planner, in my opinion, it's the most important tool we as no-tellers have, and it needs to be as mechanically perfect as you can get it. Now, I'm not gonna tell you what the ideal setup is because there is no ideal setup. I've had row cleaners on, I've had them off, I've had spike tooth closing wheels, I've had other type closing wheels. The only thing I can say that is pretty consistent, you have to have some way of having consistent down pressure, to get that seed as deep as you want it, get soil seed contact. Seed firmers are probably a, a, a constant for regardless what your situation is, but it depends on how mature your no-till soils are. Where are you along that journey? You know, do you have loose mellow soils or is it a farm or some of your ground you're just beginning to do this? So there isn't an ideal setup, but I believe, and there's no statistics to this whatsoever, but 80 to 90 percent of your yield potential is set once that planter runs through the ground that day. Um, you've got your fertility plans, you've got your variety selection and so on, and if you place that seed at the right depth, get good soil seed contact, um, I think 80 to 90 percent of your yield potential was set. Now weather can sure change that. We had 24 inches of rain in two and a half weeks this summer and that could pretty well knock some of my 80 to 90 percent off, but in a, in a normal year, if that ever exists anymore, I believe that's the case. <clears throat> Just like Starbucks and McDonald's, uh, if you buy French fries here in Indianapolis, they taste pretty much the same as what they do in Hurricane West Virginia. Uh, your planter 
should be run, I think, in the same way. If there's more than one person running a planner, there needs to be a written plan how you want things done. You know, your number of trips around the ends. You know, how do you form your straight line? You know, how do you want your corners? Your d down pressure parameters. Uh, that's, most of that is done automatically now with some of the equipment we have. But whoever's running that planner needs to know what type of resistance that gauge wheel needs to have. You need to get off the planner and check to make sure things are right. Um, planting 50 acres of corn at three quarters of an inch deep is kind of a sick feeling, I can tell you from experience. <clears throat> um, have the balance of your machinery ready. I'm not gonna go through the rest of them, but you know, your sprayers, your combines, everything else, and have you know, maintenance plans that, are, that you follow. The next set I'm going to talk about is marketing plans. Um, be disciplined. Trying to sell for the high price of the year is not a, not a plan. That's a disaster. Uh, you've got to know your cost of production to, to do that, and you've got to protect from the downside. Uh, there are several ways of doing that, hedge to arrive, forward contracting. Whatever you are comfortable doing, uh, use them. And if you're not comfortable doing it, hire a professional to do it for you. That can make the difference between profitability or not. Document all these plans. Write them down. Make yourself accountable for them. And share them with the appropriate people in your operation to make sure that everybody is on the same page. This may seem, you know, elementary, but you got to put your plans to action. This is especially true if you're, going, if you're thinking about doing a new, new project. Uh, you know, just don't be afraid of failure. Uh, you learn from failure sometimes. Don't bet the whole farm on it, but try, try new things and, you know, have a plan of action for doing it. Uh, Gabe Brown, I heard him once say that if he doesn't have at least five new practices fail per year, he isn't trying enough. I'm not as daring as Gabe is on things, but uh, I think it's really true. Don't, don't settle for the way you do things. If I'd be settling for the way I started out, 125 bushel corn would be pretty good for me, and that doesn't pay the bills. Assess and document your plan's effectiveness. You know, objectively, did you meet your goals? Uh, you may have, but subjectively, is the plan worth it? You know, sometimes you may reach a goal, but it's really unworkable. Check with your partners, check with your employees. Is it worth doing? You gotta sometimes review your plans throughout the season, uh, you know, being done by May 10th and with planning and it rains to May 8th, you gotta adjust sometimes. And review these plans yearly and make adjustments and then start all over. So I think those are the things to really key to be successful. I've got some other random thoughts that I think will help your, uh, your, your be successful, and that's one, have the correct business structure. As I said before, I was in a partnership before, and it, uh, it didn't work. But regardless whether it's a partnership or a LLC or corporation or something, make sure that each individual has their own contribution and their own responsibilities. You know, make that clear as to who's in charge of what. If you have one person who's in charge of marketing, give them the authority to make marketing decisions or machinery decisions or whatever it is. Uh, you know, have this clearly put out. Lots of times partnerships 
make the wrong decision due to inaction. Neither person wants to make a decision, and inaction is sometimes worse than the wrong decision. Once you have that business entity figured out, have it drawn up by a responsible attorney with all parties signing, and can it survive divorce? Can it survive the death of a partner or the actions or principles of the families? You know, if, if a partner dies, does a spouse want to cash out right away? Can your business continue on that way? Do you have a plan for, you know, transitioning? Or, you know, heaven forbid somebody uh, in your operation has an accident with a farm pickup truck, injures or kills somebody. I guarantee you that the injured party finds out, you know, your operation is worth 10 or 15 million dollars. They're, they're going to not want to settle for whatever the auto insurance covers, which you know brings me to make sure that your assets are properly titled and that they're properly insured. Make sure you have an insurance review every at least every year. Make sure you have proper insurance in place. Next thing I'm going to talk about are employees. Um, the ability to use a laptop touchscreen far outweighs the strong back and the weak mind. The days of the, you know, minimum wage hired hand, I think, are over with. Um, don't, also, don't expect the guys to be working 75-hour work weeks, week in and week out. Yeah, we get busy in spring and fall, but you occasionally have to give them some time off. Their, their spouses will definitely appreciate it. And if they've done a good job, uh, reward them. You know, have a cookout. Take them out to dinner. And I'm not talking McDonald's. You know, spend a little bit of money. Reward them. Another thing I think is a random thought. Never stop learning. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, in my opinion, and it's not because Frank's in the room, this is, you know, one of the best, you know, no-till learning experiences you can have. But there are other ones around, too. There's, you know, top producer seminars, Farm Journal commodity classic, so on, go to these and, uh, you know, go attend ones that challenge you. Don't go to the same thing over and over again. And budget a respectable amount of dollars for education each year. Another random thought is we need to change the perception the general public has of commercial agriculture. When us as farmers look at that picture, it's a Pretty nice John Deere sprayer and a pretty decent cornfield. Guys doing a good job. The general non-farm public looks at that picture and they see one of those, you know, corporate farmers poisoning the land and poisoning that crop. We need to change that perception. Um, you know, the views of fringe groups like PETA are now becoming the new normal for a large portion of the general public. Look at the Chipotle, the subway situation where they're not going to use GMOs, uh, the use of antibiotics. I believe that we as no-tillers, and especially ones using cover crops, do as environmentally a responsible job as anybody in agriculture, but I don't think that story is being told. Uh, the major commodity groups, I don't think, have done a very good job of that. Uh, groups like Farmers Alliance, I think, are trying to change it. But I think as individuals here, I don't know, there's probably a thousand people here at this conference. Every one of us have at least 10 non-farm friends. Now, I'm not a big social media person, but uh, you know, if you spread that story to your non-farm friends, 
of the good jobs that we are doing, that our nutrients are staying in place, we're not polluting waterways, that can, you can see that a thousand people with, you know, ten friends apiece, I'm not great at math, but that's quite a few people, and a few of those will begin to change their attitude toward agriculture. I think we have a PR problem. We need to support farm or youth ag activities, 4-H, FFA are obvious, but I think there's also earth science classes, environmental science classes. If you feel comfortable doing it, go speak to one of these. I'm sure the high school teachers will, you know, encourage it, and better yet, have them come out to the farm. You know, experiencing a soil pit is far more effective than telling somebody about them. And the last thing I'm going to talk about randomly is uh, get your priorities straight. And I break this into the four F's in, in order of priority. The first one is faith. Now, I'm not going to evangelize or proselytize to you, but in my opinion, God created the land we're fortunate enough to farm. And he also gave us the, the tools to do it. It's our responsibility to show him respect and honor by treating it correctly. And also, as you know, I've told you, I've had quite a few mishaps throughout my farming career, and I'd have been lost without the strength that faith has provided for me. And as our dear late friend Ed, Ed Winkle used to say, it's not our place, it's God's place. We're just temporary caretakers. The next F in my uh, priority list is family. We have 40 chances in our lifetime or so to raise a crop. Something messes up, we get a new start the next spring. You got one chance to raise a child. You can only miss so many soccer games or so many dress or dance recitals before it makes a difference. So get your priorities straight on that. And also, you know, recognize your wife's or your significant other's contribution. Oftentimes they're a great business partner uh, my wife can run the combine every bit as good as I can. So respect your wives and your, your family's wishes. And the next one is friends. Don't limit your social activities to a couple months in the winter. Uh, and lots of our friends are other farmers in competition for land. Be respectful for that. I respect a friend more than I do an extra 100 acres. And the last one in priority is farm, and you may think I have this backwards, but the farm takes priority lots of times over faith, family, and friends. But, you know, if you interviewed farmers on their deathbed and you asked them what they would want to change, I doubt many of them would want to spend more hours working on their farms. They would rather maybe spend more time in faith, family, and friends. So. You know, don't let the farm define who you are. Let your relationships with faith, family, and friends define what your farm is. So in conclusion, I've had a lot of hits and misses over the past 40 years, and I think the keys to be successful in the next 20 are have a mission, keep a positive attitude, set your goals, make your plans, work your plans, assess your outcome, and keep your priorities straight. Thank you. Thank you to Mike Wolpert for sharing with us those key insights he's attained from 40 years of farming. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 26th annual National No Tillage Conference next year in Louisville, Kentucky. The 2018 event will be held on January 9th through the 12th, and if you register between now and January 31st, you'll save $130 off the full on-site rate. Again, the super early bird rate of $249 ends at the end of the month. Visit notillconference.com to register. I'd also like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Copperhead Egg, once again for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I look forward to your feedback on today's episode, so feel free to drop me an email at lbarrera at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Mike Wolpert, Copperhead Ag, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Laura Barrera. Thanks for listening.